The sermon Iran in Bible Prophecy will begin shortly. To help you understand the message better, we recommend that you download the accompanying PDF of the 81 slides used in the message and follow along as you listen. Thank you. Now, you've come because uh, perhaps some of you are interested in the topic of eschatology or biblical prophecy. Now, this morning, I want to let you know that I will speak faster than I usually speak, which is already fast, uh, but I hope that you will be able to keep up. I've got to go through 81 slides in 40 minutes. Uh, and the point is not to try to overwhelm you uh, with information. Uh, the point is that we have people here with a wide variety of spiritual knowledge and spiritual maturity. Uh, and so I hope that uh, as you have come and as you walk away, that you will not walk away thinking, I can't understand any of this. This is too complex for my simple mind. I hope you'll walk away with uh, understanding that God is in control. God knows what he's doing even though we don't. And I hope that you will become students of the scripture. And hopefully that which you don't know, you will be challenged to want to know more. And uh, uh, I know some of you are, as diligent Asian students, want to try to copy every one of these notes. And, and you're going to try to say, don't flash those slides too quickly. I didn't catch it all. Feel free to take pictures. Uh, and, uh, next week, we'll try to provide printed out copies of uh, these PDFs uh, so that you can pick that up uh, at the office if you so desire. But we're going to talk about Iran and biblical prophecy. And we're going to look uh, at biblical prophecy from the perspective of uh, Iran or what is referred to as Persia in the Bible. Now, why are we talking about this? For those of you who are not news junkies like me and have no idea what's happening in the world, in case you missed it, uh, there's been tension in the Middle East for the past few months. Uh, and just as a quick summary, a few months ago, between the months of May and June of 2019, there were a lot of oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman that were attacked, and uh, Iran was suspected because of the sophistication of the devices used to sabotage these oil tankers. Uh, and if you Google uh, oil tankers uh, attack, you will see that there were many that simply didn't make our headlines here in the Philippines. A few weeks later, on June 20th of 2019, Iran shoots down a U.S. drone over international airspace over the Straits of Hormuz. And what's important to note is that drone had a right to be there, being over international airspace, and yet Iran did not want, perhaps, the U.S. spying on them and shot down this drone. And that began to build a tension that we have just a few days ago. Again, a few weeks after that, in July 19th of 2019, uh, Iran sent their commandos. This is an actual picture of the commandos landing on the British oil tanker, the Stena Imperio, again on Omani waters, meaning international waters. They had a very right to be there. Uh, and right off the country of Oman, Iran sees a British oil tanker. A few weeks later, uh, one of the largest oil refineries uh, in the world, in Saudi Arabia, was attacked. Forces aligned with Iran claimed responsibility for this sophisticated attack, but most people believe it was called for by uh, Iran because, again, of the sophistication of technology used uh, to orchestrate the attack on the Saudi oil refineries and the use of drones uh, for this. Fast forward a few months, uh, this also did not make much news here uh, in our country, but uh, an airbase uh, used by uh, the U.S. and Iraqi forces were attacked in Kirkuk uh, in Iraq by Iranian-backed militia. Uh, and a U.S. contractor was killed and it wounded several uh, other service members as well. Uh, and of course, uh, this inflamed the tension uh, where in a few days later, 
again, while we were celebrating the end of this old year uh, and welcoming the new on December 31 of 2019, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, Iraq, was attacked by, again, Iranian-backed militia. I think all of those things led up to what happened uh, the first few days of New Year on January the 3rd of 2020, where a U.S. drone killed General Qassam Soleimani, which was the commander of Iran's famed Quds Force. And it was this assassination that triggered a lot of tough words and rhetoric uh, and inflamed a lot of tensions in the Middle East. And uh, the talk of war uh, began to uh, be talked about in circles, both um, domestically and internationally. It's interesting that after uh, the killing of the general, uh, if you look at social media based on what people were concerned about, uh, World War III began to trend globally in the hashtags. And so everyone was scared and worried is World War III going to happen? In fact, if you look at the top 10 uh, of these uh, hashtags that are used in social media, one of them was no to World War III. I found that a bit funny as if a hashtag can prevent a world war. But that's what's one of the highest trending hashtags, no to World War III. But that kind of falls in line with what our generation believes they are empowered to do, that one hashtag by a teenager can stop a war. But that being said, a few days later, on January the 8th of 2020, Iran attacked two U.S. military bases in response to the killing of uh, the commander of their Quds Force. Uh, no civilian or military casualties were reported. Uh, apparently, Iran had informed Iraq, which had informed the U.S. of these imminent attacks. And that's why the next day, just a few days ago, uh, President Trump of America addressed the nation and de-escalates the crisis over Iran's missile attacks. Because of these things, many people are asking, are we in the end times? Pastor, are we living in the time of the tribulation, the great tribulation spoken of in the book of the Revelation? Uh, how does this relate to the fulfillment of prophecy? Of course, events like this often trigger these questions in our mind. Jesus answers uh, this question in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. Look what he says in verses 3 to 8 of Matthew chapter 24. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? These are the same questions that we're asking today. When will the end of time be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What are the signs of the end times? Note what Jesus does. He doesn't immediately begin to list out all the signs of his soon coming. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed, note this, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear wars and rumors of war. See that, note this, you are not troubled. For these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. You see, biblical prophecy is not to trouble us, it's not to scare us, it's to assure us. To understand that the things that are happening in our world have to happen as part of God's sovereign plan. As we look to Him in trust. For nations will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows, a word of caution from Jesus himself. You see, the Bible has given us God's plan for the end times. In seminary, we call it the study of eschatology. Eschaton meaning last things, end times, ology, study of, the study of the end times, eschatology or biblical prophecy. You see, God's plan for the end times 
according to what our church believes the Bible teaches, has been laid out very clearly. And I have given you an executive summary, uh, both in English and in Chinese, that is in your pews. And if you don't have a copy, you can pick one up from the ushers at the end of the service. We don't have time to talk about this in full detail, but uh, very quickly, we are currently living in the church age. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that it is a mystery, a mysterion, that which is unrevealed in the past now being revealed. The next eschatological event we're waiting for is the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the Bible clearly says that Christ will call us home. Here in the rapture, he calls us. And in the second coming, we come with him. So very distinct events in the Bible. And after the rapture of the church, the Bible tells us in heaven, we stand before Jesus as the judge. And in the judgment seat of Christ, we will be judged for our works, for our rewards. That's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, at the Bema seat of Christ. While that's happening on earth, there are seven years of unprecedented judgment called the Great Tribulation. The Bible tells us uh, that uh, this is uh, God delivering the judgment that he has been warning about. And it's interesting that we don't simply take willy-nilly seven because that is like a, a, a biblical number. But in the book of Daniel, the book of the Revelation, uh, it is recorded that it will be seven years. It will begin when the Antichrist signs the peace treaty with Israel according to Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. At the end of the seven years, Jesus Christ comes again, and the Bible tells us he establishes his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Why a thousand? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. We don't go beyond what the Bible reveals to us. And yet the Bible tells us he will come and he will reign on David's throne. After the end of the thousand years, there will be the great white throne judgment. And this is a judgment for all unbelievers of all ages. And after this judgment, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is the supreme court of heaven because their names were not found in the Lamb's book of life. And then in some of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Revelations chapter 21 to 22, it talks about the new heaven and the new earth where we will enjoy fellowship with our Lord forever, the Bible tells us. Now you look at this chart and for some of you, you're being introduced to it for the first time. But for some of you, uh, you know this. And we don't simply take this chart, complex as it looks, out of the air. This is what we believe the scriptures teach. If you are a student of the scriptures and you look at the Bible chronologically, especially in the prophetic books, you see that there is a chronological, uh, as God is a God of order, in how God reveals his plan of the ages. Here are the chapter divisions in the book of the Revelations, chapter 1 to 22. The bulk of this very fascinating book is found in chapters 6 to 18, talking about the Great Tribulation. And there in chapter 6 to 18, you find out about, uh, you know, the, the Red Dragon, and then uh, the Beast out of the Sea, the Antichrist, the number 666, so on and so forth. Uh, there are a lot of characters, like the 144,000 witnesses, the two witnesses. That's beyond the scope of our talk this morning, but uh, know that all those things happen, the Bible tells us, in the seven-year Great Tribulation period. Now, with this overview, let's look specifically at the importance of Iran or Persia in the Bible. Uh, we may not know about this, but Iran or Persia was very important in how God reveals his historic plan, both in the near future and in the eschatological future. We turn to the book of Daniel. Here in Daniel's prophecies uh, given by God, Daniel is given prophetic visions that reveal the kingdoms to come uh, from his present reception of God's word. And if you remember right off the bat in Daniel chapter 2, we find out that King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, the king of Babylon. 
He is greatly disturbed by this dream because he sees an image uh, of, of a man uh, who is divided into many types of metals. And then there is a, a stone, uh, not hewn by men, who comes and smashes it all. He is so disturbed that uh, the next day he calls all of his magicians and soothsayers and advisors and he tells them, interpret this dream for me. But I'm not going to tell you the dream. And if you don't tell me the dream, then I know that all of you are frauds. And of course, these guys are saying, wait, hang on. You want us to interpret a dream, but you won't tell us the dream. Of course, they were frauds. But the reality is, Nebuchadnezzar was so disturbed by this dream that he realized that they could say whatever they want. He wanted the right answer. And so they couldn't do so because he wouldn't tell them what uh, he dreamt. And it took Daniel, given wisdom and inspiration from God through the Spirit, and he was able to interpret the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. He tells the king that what he dreamt was uh, a man uh, with many different metals used for different parts of the body, and they would describe the kingdoms to come. The head of gold representing the nation of Babylon. The breast, the arms of silver, representing Persia, modern-day Iran. The torso of bronze represents Greece, and then the legs of iron representing the Roman Empire, and then the toes of iron and clay representing an eschatological reunion of these European countries. So Persia uh, is very significant in biblical prophecy, but also in the unfolding of God's plan. It's made up of two people group, both the Medes and the Persians, the Persians being more well-known of the two. Now, to put it again into a biblical context, uh, it was under the Persian kingdom that we have the story of Queen Esther. You remember that story? Uh, a lot of you know it. Uh, King Xerxes, or in the Bible, referred to as Ahasuerus, uh, didn't like Vashti's wife, and so selected Esther to be his queen. But God was orchestrating things that Esther would be queen at a time when the nation needed her the most. And so if you remember Haman's plan to destroy the Jewish people, Haman being a trusted advisor of King Ahasuerus, uh, that plot uncovered, and Queen Esther saves her people by appealing to the king, and that saving of the Jewish people is remembered even today in the festival of Purim. Now you also know, if you look at the Bible, that the Persian kings were very instrumental in the fulfillment of God's prophecy to the nation of Israel. If you remember, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel and their cycles of sin uh, wore out God's patience. And what happened is God said, because of your continued disobedience, you will be kicked out of the land. And they were exiled by the Babylonian kingdom. And there, many of them were sad and depressed, but God sent prophets like Ezekiel to encourage them and say, don't worry, you will be brought back. And sure enough, when the nations changed from Babylon to Persia, it was the Persian kings that allowed the exiles to return. And we read about Cyrus and Darius who allow the Jewish people to come back. And there Zerubbabel uh, was able to begin the construction to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and it took people like Ezra uh, and the prophet Haggai to really encourage the people to finish the temple project. And then we get to King Artaxerxes, again, very instrumental uh, in the development of biblical prophecy in that time frame where Nehemiah, his cupbearer, seeing that the walls of Jerusalem were not rebuilt, 
uh, which posed the danger to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, asked King Artaxerxes, can I go back and rebuild the city walls, which Artaxerxes allows. And that decree will play a very important part in biblical prophecy. Now again, we're giving you an overview of what uh, Iran or Persia means to the scriptures. We fast forward a few more chapters and we get to Daniel chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, And here the Bible tells us that there is a ram and a goat. And sometimes we think that biblical prophecy is so difficult to understand because there's a lot of symbolic language used. There's a lot of animals and, and, and we say, you know, I give up. I can't figure this out. But, you know, if you take the time and are patient to study God's word, you see that the Bible doesn't leave a lot of things to chance. It tells us exactly how we are to interpret it. And here in Daniel chapter 8, verse 20, it says, The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, you've got to remember, this was written before the Medes and the Persians were any much of an empire. They were just a people that lived under the jurisdiction of the Babylonians. But in this chapter, we find out that there is a ram that represents the nation of Persia, and there would be a goat. Again, uh, the empire of Greece was not an empire to speak of. There were a bunch of city-states that were fighting each other. And yet the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 8 that the ram and the goat fight each other. And what's important is that the ram has to be defeated by the goat for the horns to come out. Again, just a quick overview. What are these horns? In Daniel chapter 8, it talks about a notable horn that destroys the ram. And this notable horn, historically, is Alexander the Great, which defeats the Persian Empire. And yet, surprisingly, we're told that after this notable horn defeats the ram, four horns come out of it. They represent kings, the Bible tells us. And sure enough, Alexander the Great dies without any heir. And so his four generals come and they divide the Greek Empire. And for us as students of biblical prophecy, uh, what's important to us is out of the four, uh, two are important. The king of the south, known as Ptolemy, and the king of the north, known as Cellulus. It is from the king of the north that the Bible tells us there is a great horn that comes out. And this great horn attacks Israel. In biblical prophecy, this great horn is known as Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a historical figure. It is him that destroys Jerusalem. It is he that causes the abomination, that causes desolation historically when he goes and he sacrilegious uh, the Jewish temple. But what is important is that he is a type in the Bible. A type is an example. He is a type of the future Antichrist that will also do the same to Israel as well. So the importance uh, of all this uh, cannot be lost uh, on those who are careful students of the Bible. Antiochus is a type of the Antichrist. Now, again, not trying to overwhelm you, but just trying to show some of you who have a greater spiritual knowledge that Persia is very important. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel has a question similar to the disciples. Lord, when will these things happen? When will the age age, uh, uh, end? When will you come back? When will you establish your kingdom? And God gives Daniel a mathematical equation. This is a favorite chapter of people who love math. Now, I'm not going to explain this chart in detail, but in Daniel's 70th weeks, uh, what you're going to see is uh, an unfolding of God's plan. Very precise, very specific. That's why we know when Jesus Christ will be crucified. You see, what's important in this chart is when is the starting point? When do you start counting? 
right? When will it start? And the Bible is very specific in Daniel chapter 9. You begin to count when the issue to rebuild the walls has been given. Now that should remind you from an earlier chart, which I showed you about the decrees of the Persian kings. There were four that deal with Israel. What I want to point you to is the last one, where Artaxerxes issues a decree in the book of Nehemiah that his cupbearer Nehemiah can go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we see that as being 444 B.C. That's our starting point to the exact date. That's why we know historically when Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem and is cut off means he is crucified. And then the Bible tells us there is a great parenthesis. There is a stoppage in the counting of time, and there will be one more 70. And that's why, again, in theology, we have something called the postponement of the promised kingdom. It is between the cross and his second coming that we have this great mystery called the church. That's what we are a part of. The mystery of the church, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, tells us about this. Now, to simplify it for you, think about a doomsday clock. Daniel asks the question, Lord, when will you come back? And the Lord says, Daniel, number zero to 70. Start the clock. You begin starting that quote-unquote stopwatch when the decree is issued for the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And so it begins to tick, 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 tick. And we find out that when we get to 69, that the clock is stopped. When the Messiah is cut off. That's what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 9. Again, this is centuries before it happens. So now, if you're looking at a biblical doomsday clock, we are at 69. We are waiting for the last tick. Where is that last seven? Where is that last tick? Again, I'm not making this up. We go back to the Bible chronologically. The book of Daniel chapter 9. The clock will start again. We're at 69. The clock will start again when the Antichrist signs a peace covenant. He confirms a covenant with many, with Israel, for seven years, for one week. All right, that's your last seven. The signing of the peace treaty starts the clock, 69, and that's why the great tribulation, that along with other passages, tells us it's seven years. At the end of the tribulation, the Bible is very clear, then Jesus Christ comes back again. I love how precise the Bible is. Now, we're not supposed to date set because we don't know when the clock will start again. So I'm not date setting here. I'm just simply saying that in the revelation of God's great plan, the Persian kings in their decree to allow the city walls to be rebuilt begins this prophetic doomsday clock. Now let's get even more specific into Iran, specifically what the Bible has to say about Iran in its prophetic literature. Now there are two places, the first being Ezekiel chapter 38 and the second place being in Jeremiah chapter 49. We're going to take a look at those two passages, but let's take a step back to give you the context for which Ezekiel 38 and Jeremiah chapter 49 is given. Are you guys okay? You look stunned, all right? It's a lot of information I know. This is not a typical Sunday morning sermon. Take a deep breath. I understand that's a lot to absorb, but again, it's to whet your appetite so that you become wonderful students uh, of the scriptures. Now, Taking a step back to understand the context of Ezekiel chapter 38 and Jeremiah chapter 49, the Bible tells us that there will be five world powers, five, five nations per se, uh, that will play a very big role in the end times. We don't have time to go through them in detail, 
But we'll take a look quickly at three. The first being Europe, the West. And the reason I bring this up is because I often ask the quest, or get asked the question, what about the United States of America? And there are a lot of people who try to shoehorn America into this Western world power, which the Bible talks about uh, in the book of Daniel and the book of the Revelation. Here, the Western powers, 10 nations under one confederacy, is talked about in Daniel chapter 7. It is Daniel's fourth beast. And so, a lot of people want to try to shoehorn America into this. And yet, here's the truth. The Bible does not talk about the United States of America. It doesn't. And so, I know that there's a lot of videos on YouTube and the stuff you read on the internet that talks about America's place in the end times. I'm here to tell you, if you read the Bible, the Bible is silent about America. Either in God's sovereign divine plan, he does not reveal anything about America, or America is simply not no longer a world power. Hard to believe, but the Bible simply is silent about America. So, if you read anything about people claiming that they have these certain prophecies where America fits in the place, you know that they are going beyond what the Bible says. Let me give you an example. A lot of people tell me, Pastor, we find America in the book of Isaiah. We read about an eagle in prophetic literature, and America's symbol is the bald eagle. That must be America. I'm going to tell them, let me tell you something. The national bird of the Philippines is also the eagle. And I can tell you with 100% certainty that Isaiah is not talking about the Philippines. All right, so you got to understand that when we do the hermeneutics of prophecy, it's not what you get to pick and choose to represent certain things based on an animal, all right? So the Bible is simply silent about America. Now, the Bible talks about the king of the north, uh, and there's a lot of details to that. And whenever you study biblical prophecy, any direction is based off of the geographical center of the Bible, which is Israel or Jerusalem. So when it's talking about north, south, east, or west, it's talking about it in relation to where Israel is. So what is north of Israel? Um, there's a lot of countries, the Caucasus and, and Russia and Ukraine. But uh, specifically, when you look at the scriptures, it seems to indicate that there will be a force, perhaps the Russians, uh, who will be a force that attacks Israel in the end times. Now, a lot of people have written the Russians off. They thought after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, that economically they wouldn't be a world power. And yet we see, in a sense, prophecy unfolding before our eyes. And we see that uh, under Putin and the leaders before him that the Russians very much are building up their military and becoming a world force as well. But there will be a power north of Israel that comes and will be antagonistic towards it and attack it. Then we have the king of the south. Uh, and these are in reference to the Arab kingdoms uh, that will come together in the end times, and they will also attack Israel. And the reason they will still play a part in end-time world power, perhaps, is because of uh, the oil that they have. And yes, I know that there are other countries that say they have a larger uh, oil reserve uh, than the Middle East, but the reality is they are very hard to get to. The most accessible, cheap way to get access to oil is still in the Middle East. In fact, the book of Daniel in chapter 11 prophesies about this. And at the time of the end, shall the, note this, the king of the south, push at him. 
And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. Again, if you study the context of Daniel chapter 11, then you will find out that this is an eschatological chapter that has yet to happen. So the king of the south, allied with the king of the north, will, like in a pincer move, attack Israel. Now that sets the stage for us to come to Ezekiel chapter 38. And here in the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 38, we find out that Iran, Persia, does attack Israel. So we're going to have two questions here. When does this happen, and who are the players involved? All right? So let's take a look at this chapter, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2. Son of man, talking about Israel, set your face against Gog, guard against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. This is the king of the north, the king named Gog, and this is the land that he encompasses. Now, a lot of people say, oh, look, there it is, the prince of Rosh. Rosh sounds like Russia, it must be Russia. Meshek sounds like Moscow. No, that, that's, that's terrible hermeneutics. We're not playing a game of sounds like, all right? That's not the game we play, uh, especially if you are good students of the Bible. Here, we're given the ancient lands, and so we've got to take the time to map where these places are. And I've done it for you. All of these ancient lands are found in the modern-day countries of Russia, Turkey, and what we call the Stan countries, the countries I can't spell or pronounce, like uh, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and uh, whatever all the stands, all right? So uh, you have to understand that you can't go and say, yeah, that's got to be Russia because it sounds like Russia. No. Our biblical basis is where do these ancient lands currently, uh, uh, where are they currently in today's world map? And so we see that happening, the Caucasus, uh, Crimea being a tension point uh, a few uh, years ago. And so a lot of things are happening north. And the Bible tells us specifically as it relates to Iran that the ally of the king of the north will be these nations. Look with me at verses 5 to 6. Persia, which is today's modern Iran, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Libya, uh, which is modern-day Libya, are with them, all of them with shields and helmet, Gomer, Turkey, and all of its troops, the house of Togarmath, which is also in Turkey, from the far north and all of its troops, many people are with you. Now, some of you may say, maybe that happened in the historical past. There has never been an occurrence in the historical past where all of these nations came into a confederacy and attacked the nation of Israel. It's never happened. So if God's prophetic word is to be true, which it is, all 100% of it, then this is yet to come. Now, a lot of people looked at the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, and they said, you know what? This can't happen. Because a generation ago, Persia was very much allied with the West, specifically America. This is a picture of Shah Mohammed Reza. He is the last Shah of Iran. Prior to 1980, Iran was very westernized. Uh, it had a lot of uh, American influence, Western influence. And no one thought that Iran would swing their allegiance north. And yet, for those of you who have lived long enough, you know what happened in 1979 uh, when uh, there was an Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution in Iran. And quickly, literally overnight with the hostage situation and everything else, Iran, in conjunction with biblical prophecy, swings their allegiance to the north. And so it can happen today as the allies of the king of the north have seemingly uh, worked its way geopolitically to what the Bible says. Now, the second question is the timing. That's important. When will it happen? 
are the events of last week or a few days ago a fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 because I saw that on the internet a lot we are fulfilling Ezekiel 38 this is it well let's take a look the Bible tells us in the context of Ezekiel 38 that Israel is regathered is Israel regathered today the answer is yes 1948 they were regathered now the Bible tells us in verses 7 and 9 that Gog is ready to act Israel with his allies is the king of the north if it is to be Russia uh, and the nations that support it uh, with their allies is written in the Bible ready to attack Israel today the answer geopolitically is yes it can happen now here's the key verse 14 it says that Israel is living securely in their lands enjoying a time of peace that's why they're surprised is Israel living in peace today the answer is no you go to Israel today some of you come with me you realize that everyone seems to be seemingly walks around with an m16 or assault rifle they are living in a defensive posture they are not living securely in their land they are not enjoying peace and then in verses 14 to 16 Gog attacks Israel with allies from the north and so when will there be a time where Israel is regathered where they are enjoying peace if you look at the Bible you realize that the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 that the Antichrist a future European power will sign a peace treaty with Israel to give them peace and therefore the setting of Ezekiel chapter 38 is not today it will be according to the Bible in the seven-year great tribulation period most probably during the middle so yes the pieces are moving that allow this prophetic word to be realized however it's not yet happening and it will happen only at the great tribulation and we won't be around to see it and that's what the bible says in matthew 24 wars and rumors of war but it's not yet to be is iran ready to attack israel absolutely and this famous picture uh, of Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, uh, before the UN General Assembly on September 27th of 2012, um, he infamously drew the so-called red line. That's where we get the idea of crossing the red line. Uh, a bit comical in the sense that he uses a kind of a cheap marker. Uh, it happened to be red. And he says, if Iran crosses this line, Israel will not allow uh, Iran to have the nuclear capacity or capability uh, in their final stage but there are a lot of scenarios for Israel and Iran to go to war and here's what I'm trying to tell you Iran and Israel may go to war tomorrow but that's not a fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 all right there will be a lot of wars and this may happen but the Bible tells us Israel is living in peace and then there's a surprise attack that happens from the north so Ezekiel 38 has not happened we are not currently in the eschatological end times relative to what the Bible tells us surprisingly Ezekiel 38 verse 13 tells us that there are those who are not only allies but there are those who go against the king of the north one of them being Dedan Dedan is Saudi Arabia the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions now it's interesting if we read the Bible we say no how can this be because deed in Saudi Arabia is a Muslim country all the Muslims must really live in peace shouldn't they well not really you know it today that the Bible written centuries ago prophesies about a tension in the future between Saudi Arabia and Iran and again if you are aware of what's happening in the Middle East you know that these are the two major powers 
exerting their might through proxy wars. And the reason they're fighting is not because of oil. The reason they're fighting is because of religion. It is the Sunni Muslim and the Shia Muslim. I think it's important for us as Christians, especially if we want to reach out to the Muslim people, to understand a bit about their religion. You know, we know our faith, and we're supposed to know our faith well, to be apologists, to defend our faith. But we should know a little bit about theirs, and we expect them to also seek the truth about ours. And because of sometimes our religious um, ignorance, uh, they are not receptive of the gospel because they don't think that we want to take the time to know a bit about theirs. But understanding where they're coming from helps us evangelize them. Now, just very quickly, uh, Islam is the religion. Muslim are the people. There is no Muslim religion, all right? Uh, the Sunnis make up about 85 to 90 percent of the Muslims in the world. The Shiite Muslims make up about 10 to 15 percent. And there's always tension in nations where uh, a majority is being ruled over a minority, especially when it is of a different uh, sect uh, within the religion. And so that's why you had the conflict uh, in Iraq, even today, with what we call sectarian violence, because uh, at the time of Saddam Hussein, you had a Shiite uh, majority being ruled by Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni Muslim. But you see that tension being played out in Anbar province and other province today. Syria, we have the Syrian civil war today because there is a Sunni majority in the country of Syria. But it's ruled by the Assad family. And uh, the Assad family uh, is a Shiite uh, derivative called the Alawites. So can you imagine you are a majority in the country of Syria and you are being ruled by the minority of a minority? You're not going to be very happy. And then you have places like Bahrain, which may be the next uh, 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 powder keg point, where you have a Shiite majority being ruled by a Sunni family. And all Muslims, of course, accept uh, the five pillars uh, of Islam. Uh, there's no assurance to heaven. Uh, if you ask, uh, as, ask a good Muslim, uh, are you going to heaven, as I have some friends and I've asked them, their answer is, if Allah wills, if Allah wills. And that's why you have uh, often those who are... Suicide bombers, those who blow themselves up, uh, are often uneducated. They have not read the Quran, actually, uh, because the Quran does not talk about a guarantee to go to heaven if you blow yourself up. But that is the assurance because, you know, here's the interesting thing. Everyone wants to go to heaven. People of all religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, everyone wants to go to heaven. But, uh, again, without an assurance, it's very difficult how wonderful it is that we have an assurance in Jesus Christ uh, for our assurance. Now, a few other things to point out is there can be a difference in nationality. You can be an Egyptian Muslim. You can be an Arab Muslim. You can be an Indonesian Muslim. Here's the key logic point. All Arabs are not Muslim. All Muslims are not Arabs. In fact, there are many Arabs who are Christians. And I've heard some Christians say, why should we pray for the Arabs? They're all Muslims. My friends, you've got to understand that there are a lot of Arabs who are living under persecution we should be praying for them. Here's a snapshot of the five pillars of Islam. We're not really going through uh, a study in the Islamic religion. But I just want to note the point of tension. And the point of tension is succession. The early problem was that the Prophet Muhammad had no surviving male children. He had a daughter, but no surviving male children. And so the question became, who would be the Prophet Muhammad's successor? Always succession issues when they're not clearly resolved. And so the caliph debate began, and there were two contenders to be the successor of Muhammad, one being Abu Bakr, the other being Ali. 
And you will find a lot of terrorists uh, name their uh, children or they themselves Abu Bakr as if they want to relive this, uh, this uh, successor of Muhammad. Abu Bakr was Muhammad's father-in-law uh, and a close friend of Muhammad. And he was supported by uh, what we call the Sunni Muslims today. Ali uh, was Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law. And uh, it is him who uh, the Sunnis believe because of his blood relation uh, to Muhammad is the rightful successor. They have been fighting this war since 656 to 661, more than 1,500 years in the first Islamic civil war. They've been fighting this for centuries. Again, the idea being who is the successor. Who should we follow? The Sunni Muslims believe that uh, spiritual leadership is not based on a birthright. It's based on piety, trustworthiness, and devotion to the Quran. Uh, and they allow that their imams make mistakes. They are imperfect. And the seed of Sunni Muslim uh, thought is in Cairo, Egypt. The Shias, on the other hand, believe that the spiritual leadership must be a descendant of Muhammad and that their imams are perfect. They come directly from God. Um, and as saints, they have to perform pilgrimages to their tombs and shrines. And you read about them. There are shrines in Iraq and Iran littered with the Shias imams. That's why the Sunnis keep blowing up the shrines, which keep making the Shias angry at the Sunnis. And you begin the source of tension. And so year after year, uh, we find articles upon articles getting back to the root level of why they are in conflict. And if you look at this map of Sunnis and Shia Muslims around the world, you'll see that if there's a solid color, you usually don't have a lot of tension, right? Because if you all believe in the same thing, why should there be a lot of conflict? But I've circled the Middle East, and a lot of people think the conflict in the Middle East is because of oil. It's not because of oil. It's because of the Sunni-Shiite conflict. And you see all those colors there. It's because you've got Sunnis and Shiites all living very close together, often overlapping one another. And because of these tensions, there are going to be factions who are not moderates, right? Whenever you have two people disagreeing, you have the peacemakers. Come on, it's okay, a little difference in opinion. And you've got the hardcore guys who want to try to separate uh, uh, the distinction. And that's why you have the rise of Islamic militantism. And you have uh, uh, militism and extremism on both sides. Of course, we know about ISIS. But if you look at this map, you'll see that the Sunnis uh, have a lot more terrorist organizations because uh, they're 90%. Um, and the ones you've heard of are like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram uh, operating out of Africa. Uh, Hamas out of the Gaza Strip in the West Bank. And then you have the Abu Sayyaf right here in the Philippines. They are of Sunni uh, um, belief, uh, and most of them adhere to an uh, extreme form of Sunni Muslim uh, thought, uh, which is what's called Wahhabism, uh, and that's what you have there. The Shiites also have their extremists, and the most uh, notable one is Hezbollah, which operates out of Syria, uh, a little bit out of uh, uh, Lebanon and elsewhere. So you have got this conflict. Now, I think some of us don't understand that Jesus Christ actually plays very prominently in Islam. And what a wonderful opening uh, of the uh, window to what we think is very closed in terms of evangelism. You know, if you are able to read the Quran as I have, you'll find out that Jesus Christ uh, is recognized as the second to the last prophet uh, of God, a messenger of God, uh, Muhammad being the last to our surprise, the Quran, often spelled with a K or a Q, describes Jesus as the Messiah, born of a virgin, performs miracles, raised to heaven. And that's surprising, and that's written in the Quran. 
unfortunately, they deviate from us because they reject Jesus Christ as God incarnate. So they reject his divinity while we affirm to his divinity and his humanity being the second person of the Godhead. You may have never thought that Jesus Christ, the prophet Isha, and uh, how do we know that Isha is Jesus Christ? Because in the Quran, it's Isha, son of Mary. All right, so it's there. It's mentioned 187 times, directly or indirectly, in 93 verses. Jesus Christ is the most mentioned person in the Islamic holy book, much more than Muhammad. And according to Islamic uh, eschatology, Jesus will come back again. For the Shiites, he will come back with the 12th imam, uh, and he will destroy the Antichrist and the devil. You begin to see a lot of similarities. And God is doing a great work, uh, even amongst the Muslim, because of Jesus Christ, surprising to us, but not to God, being in their so-called scriptures. Now, the second uh, place in the Bible where Iran is talked about, specifically in end-time dealings, is Jeremiah chapter 49. And here in Jeremiah chapter 49, to our surprise, it talks about the blessing of Iran, the restoration of the blessing of Iran. Uh, and it talks about that in an oracle of a group of nations that surround Israel except for Elam. Now, the question you should be asking is, where is ancient Elam? Where, out of nowhere, we find this prophecy against the nation of Elam. Elam today is in modern southwest Iran. Now, you should be asking the question, in Jeremiah chapter 49, in a list of all the prophecies and oracles of countries that surround Israel, that neighbor Israel, out of the blue, you get this prophecy against Elam, which is very far away from Israel. Why is this so? We don't know, actually. The Bible doesn't tell us. Perhaps there's a conflict, or perhaps there's something that's happening between these two countries that the Bible doesn't record. But all we know in verses 34 to 38 is the Bible tells us God pours out His judgment upon Elam, but to our surprise, in verse 39, God says, I will restore the fortunes of Elam in the eschatological future. The context of verse 39 in Jeremiah chapter 49 is in the latter days. That means it is yet to come. How wonderful it is that God loves all people. And God tells us that He will restore and fulfill His promise to the people of Elam, which sits in Iran today in the millennium. And so that's what God does. He disciplines, but he also blesses. Now, again, that's a lot of information for you to process. And you may be sitting there thinking, why do I care? I've got a lot of problems in my own house. I've got problems at work. Why do I care about nations I'll never visit? And why do I care about people I'll never meet? And why do I care about biblical prophecy? Well, if you would allow me just a few minutes to just share with you the importance of studying and understanding biblical prophecy. First of all, the Bible is very clear. It tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is giving us a principle. That which God has revealed for us, is for us, it's for us to understand, it's for us to live out, that is in the scriptures, his special revelation. That which God does not tell us, there are a lot of things in prophecy that I would love an answer to. He doesn't tell us in his sovereign wisdom, we don't need to know. He says, trust me. Those are for him to know alone. And so you may walk away this morning with a lot of questions in your mind. The Bible doesn't answer it, but we should be wise enough not to go beyond what the Bible says and simply allow what the Bible tells us to do be the basis for our trust in him. Because the Bible tells us that in his word that prophecy plays a prominent part. 
one-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. When it was written, the words were prophetic in its near and far eschatological fulfillment. Jesus often talked about the future events, specifically in the Olivet Discourse. In fact, he rebukes people who don't want to know about prophecy. Look what he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 56. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern the times? You're so concerned about looking at astrology and horoscopes, which are all false and in our context, looking at dates and whatnot, good days, bad dates. We place such emphasis on those things which are untrue when you do not try to discern the times based on what the Word of God tells us for how we are to live. And then the Bible talks about how prophecy and understanding of it correctly uh, with the borders and the filters and the guidelines to prevent us from false teachings. You see, we are a generation that has access to a lot of information. But the sad part of our generation, young and old, sometimes the older people don't know how to filter. You know, because you get those spam emails from your parents and your grandparents, and you want to tell them, don't you know this is a scam? But they think it's true. No one is filtering. This is the generation with the most access to information, but no one is filtering. Everyone believes everything they see on YouTube and read on the Internet. It's wonderful. My kids watch YouTube. I watch YouTube. But the sad part about it is that everyone can be an expert. Everyone can have an idea. I can't tell you all the links I got this week. Some goofy, goofy stuff. Everyone believes it to be true. You can start your own YouTube channel. You can be an expert in Bible prophecy. But the Bible tells us that we are to filter through the Word of God. What he says in Matthew 24, verse 4 to 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, like that guy in Davao, saying, I am the Christ. And will deceive many. Many. So important this admonition that is repeated two more times in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 5 following, then Luke, chapter 21, verse 8 following. My friends, the amount of time you spend on the internet, would you spend equal amount of time in the Word of God so that you can know what the Bible says, so you can properly filter what you read and hear? And then, why do we study prophecy? So that we can be practically prepared. We can be waiting with anticipation. We can be watchful with expectation. We can be ready with excitement. When Paul writes to Timothy, uh, excuse me, when Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, he has taught them prophecy. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, he says, And you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You shouldn't be surprised when Jesus Christ comes again. When we know about biblical prophecy, it reminds us that Jesus Christ is coming again. That's one of the core tenets of all evangelicals, that Jesus Christ will physically return on earth. And we can't take anything with us when we go into eternity. So the question is, how much have you invested? An understanding of prophecy reminds us of how we are to live. My friends, it doesn't mean because Jesus has not come for 2,000 years that he's not going to come for another 2,000 years. It just means we're one day closer to the coming of Christ. And if we're one day closer to the coming of Jesus Christ, that should radically change the way we live. He could come this afternoon. He could come this evening. He could come tomorrow morning. We don't know. But if we understand that Jesus Christ is coming again, we can't take anything with us. What are you living your life for? What are you trying to accumulate? How much have you invested in eternity? Because I've 
said in our masterclass series when we did that talk, you won't have another chance living in heaven to earn more rewards. Just like when you're in hell, you won't have another chance to be saved again. The Bible is very clear about those teachings. So how much are you investing in eternity? How you live this life today determines and will reverberate throughout eternity. Do not be surprised on the day Jesus comes. It is a reminder of hope that our God is victorious. In spite of what's happening in the world, he knows what he's doing. He is in control. And there's a blessing when we seek to know prophecy. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. It's a blessing from God. And who doesn't want a blessing from God? I think it's important to get some action points because you'll walk away, perhaps head spinning, uh, full of information, but that's it. But I don't give these talks so that you can be smarter with current day events and biblical prophecy. It's for us to take action. One of them being, of course, is being better students of the scriptures. That which you don't know, I hope you will take the time to carefully look at scripture. Filter what you read and hear. I hopefully have set some guidelines for you so that when you see something on the internet that you will not speculate, that you will not date set. That's the worst thing, to go beyond what the Bible has to say. I think it's important. I wonder how many of you who are, you were hashtagging World War III. How many of you are praying for the people of Iran? How many of you are praying for the Middle East? How many of you are praying that those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior would know Jesus Christ? I hope you were. Sometimes we watch the news, we watch it very passively. I've learned over the years to, as I watch the news, which I love doing, to just say a quiet prayer and a quick prayer even for the things that are happening. We watch the news to see the things that are unfolding, recognizing there's a greater God who can help those who are suffering. Pray that God would raise the people to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the unreached people in the Middle East. How many of us were praying that in this time of instability, where people's hearts are tender, that God would raise up a generation of missionaries to go, pastors, teachers to go and bring the gospel. If this was a missionary context or a conference, I'd ask you to raise your hand. How many of you would be willing to go to another country? I think some of you may raise your hands. How many of you would be willing to go to Iran? All the hands disappear. No one wants to die, they think, right? But how would they hear, the Bible says, if there's not a preacher? And so pray that God would raise the people to bring the gospel of Jesus to the unreached people. If you can't go, that God would work in the hearts of others. And then pray also for the persecuted Christians in the Middle East. There are estimated 800,000 Christians in Iran. Pray that they may be faithful witnesses. We don't understand what it is to live under persecution. The Bible tells us, and also history tells us, that oftentimes under the greatest persecution, the church of God grows but it's hard. Imagine, there couldn't be no gathering like this. This cannot happen in Iran. This doesn't happen in the Middle East. We're privileged. So we, with this privilege, should be praying for the persecuted Christians that God would strengthen their witness, that God would keep them faithful, that God would help them to live out their lives in such a way that they can be a testimony to their neighbors. Imagine a whole world praying for a specific country. So I hope some of these action items will be what you and I do as we have heard the word of God this morning. And then finally, Jesus Christ says, as is written in the last two verses of the book of the Revelation, 
he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And a benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So if Jesus Christ says, I am coming soon, may our response be, come, Jesus, come. We are ready to meet you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I know it has perhaps in some minds been a bit overwhelming. I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to be our teacher and our guide to help us to discern the times. I pray for what's happening around the world. I thank you that you are in sovereign control. Our hearts need not be anxious when we trust in a God who knows what he's doing. I specifically pray for the people of Iran. I pray that in the midst of such uncertainty, such tension, that it would create wonderful opportunities for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be brought into this creative access nation along with the other nations of the Middle East. I pray for the brothers and sisters who this morning are also gathering in home churches around Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Yemen. Father, these are men and women who need strength from above. I pray that you would keep them faithful to you. I pray that you would make them a witness that shines Jesus Christ through the way that they live, their speech, or their action. We pray that the global universal church would support these brothers in persecution in prayer. Father, we pray for our church that in light of your soon coming, the fervency of our desire to share the gospel in our communities, in our homes, uh, will be strengthened that the urgency will be there because when you come, that's it. There is no another opportunity. And when you come, Lord, how wonderful it is that each one of us can come before you, present our lives faultless, proud of the way we've lived for you. Continue to transform us and challenge us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.